Good morning. So, I'm not coming up here and saying we continue our study in the book of Acts. We finished that last week, and we are into a new study this morning. Uh, It's like an adventure. You kind of just get yourself all geared up and ready to go. Uh, And it's an adventure. Another word for it might be an endeavor, um, a journey into the heart of the Old Testament, into the book of Deuteronomy. And my goal is, as we begin this study, is that we would see the beauty of the gospel through the lordship of Jesus Christ and through his sovereign, gracious rule. That's, that's my, my hope. It's, it, well, it, it's hard, maybe, for us to enter into a study like this as we move into the book of Deuteronomy. It can be challenging because it's, it's an ancient text. And you might be wondering, how in the world are we going to see Jesus? How in the world are we going to make sense of this thousands and thousands of year old law book? How is it going to show us the gospel? Um, so I would just encourage you, maybe that means come with a sense of anticipation. Because I, I believe this is true. We will see the gospel. We will see the, the Lordship of Christ. And if you don't have anticipation, maybe just a little bit of curiosity. That would be enough to get us going here. But my hope for all of us is that we will become more and more enamored with the Lord God, with His Word, with the good news of Jesus Christ. And in response, with eagerness, walk in humility and obedience before Him. That's our goal. That's pretty much the goal of every sermon series, but that's our goal. Um, So, with that, let's turn to the text. You can find it in your bulletins. We're going to be reading from Deuteronomy, chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 14. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, in the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and Edrai had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring places in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land. The Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their their descendants after them. At that time I said to you, You are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers, so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as He has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise understanding and respect of men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me. What you propose to do, 
is good. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we need your help this morning. Uh, We need your Spirit to be present at work in our hearts that we might receive your Word, that we might understand it, that we might rejoice in the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, that we might see the Gospel clearly through it. And that in seeing Christ, we might live in response to it. So, Lord, help me as your servant to preach faithfully. uh, And Lord, help us by your Spirit to apply it to our hearts and lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before I begin our sermon this morning, I, I, do, I, I don't want you to get worried as I give a little bit of an extended introduction. And, and the reason is pretty clear. We're starting on a, a series in a book of the Bible that is unfamiliar territory for many of us. Uh, Deuteronomy is not the place we generally go for encouragement in the Word. It's, it's maybe a few verses here and there that we look at, but we generally... <laughs> it's, it's a hard book. All right. It's a challenging book. It was written some 3,500 years ago. Think about that. Uh, there are a few reasons that I thought it was an important book to study, and I want to talk about those for a minute. Um, first, from the perspective of Scripture, Deuteronomy is anything but obscure and arcane. In, in other words, for us it feels that way, this ancient book. But for the Israelites of old, this was not an obscure book. For the people of God in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy was their formative, life-together document. It was their constitutional document, kind of like our own constitution is for the United States. It was their marching order. This is the thing by which we shape life in in the nation of Israel, in the people of God. In fact, their future kings were to make copies of it and read it regularly. It was never to leave their side. And not walking according to this law book became the grounds for prophetic judgment against Israel. You go and you read all the later writing prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they refer back to the failure of Israel to to obey the things that were written in the law. most particularly, they're referring to Deuteronomy, the, the, the sort of expansive covenantal uh, constitution of, of the people of God. One commentator described it as uh, the theological grist. I like that word. Theological grist for the later prophets' interpretation of Israel, his, Israelite history in both their oracles of doom and of salvation. Well, you might say, okay, Rob, okay, I grant you that this is a document that was very applicable to the Old Testament saints back in the times of King David and King Josiah and King Solomon and all the rest. But they were a theocratic nation, Rob. But here's another point. In the New Testament, Deuteronomy is quoted by Jesus more than any other Old Testament book. That should cause us to pause, right? And in the New Testament as a whole, it's only it's quoted or referred to uh, third most. So the other two books being the Psalms and Isaiah, we see those uh, themes come out throughout the New Testament. Uh, those are the only t- other two books that are quoted more frequently in the New Testament. <laughs> 
And that's a, that's a remarkable thing. And it should cause us to pause to, for ourselves to ask the question, how much time have I spent reading such an integral book of the Bible? Jesus saw it as integral. The apostles saw it as integral. Uh, how much time have I actually spent in it? And grant you, it's hard. There's hard stuff. One Old Testament scholar said of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy has had the greatest, has had greater consequence for human history than any other single book. That's a, that's a really strong statement. Maybe debated, but it should cause us to stop and consider. It should, should cause us to ask the question. Why, why do we not spend time here? The same theologian goes on to say, after these bold claims, Amazingly, however, I do not recall hearing one sermon on this book over my 70 years of attending church services. If I were to have you raise your hands, how how many of you have heard a sermon from the book of Deuteronomy? Maybe I'd get a few. How about a sermon series on the book of Deuteronomy? A couple, maybe one or two of you. I'm impressed. You see, I was getting really excited about preaching this text until I read that sentence uh, from this theologian because it caused me to pause and ask this question. If this book is so important, why does nobody preach on it? And then I read through the book of Deuteronomy, of course, in my studies, as I've already done in the past of my life, but I went back and reminded myself of what's in it, and I realized that there are some extremely hard and challenging topics, things that preachers don't want to preach on in the book of Deuteronomy. Things that challenge our cultural sensibilities, and things that challenge my own heart as well. And... Entering into it is a scary ordeal. But this is precisely the reason that I think it's important to study the book of Deuteronomy now. We face a regular tide of changing ethical norms within our own culture. There is very little moral or ethical code that late Western culture binds itself around. There isn't a single sort of moral code. In the past, we would have generally been sort of Judeo-Christian, at least within the context of the United States, generally speaking. I'm not trying to make any other claims other than that. But that's, that's eroded away to almost uh, non-existent certainly still has left its mark, but uh, there's this morass, if you will, of ethical, moral law. It's all over the place. And as Christians, we often have sort of this vague general idea uh, of what the Lord requires, right? We could summarize it in 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 the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We get that, that. That big overarching stuff we understand. That But then when the particular issues of life come up, the particular challenges of moral choices that we face, the the culture is pressing us from a thousand different angles, and we're left wrestling with how how do we live in light of this? This stuff that I'm facing now. And so I think, as we look at Deuteronomy, we recognize that it was within that same sort of world 
for the Israelites as they were on the precipice, on the, on the point of entering into a land full of peoples that followed false gods, that had all sorts of things that were wicked and immoral in their culture. This became their foundational document, their foundational way of life, their life together, that they would go in and they would follow God and His law. And this book, Deuteronomy, parses out a lot of the details of what it means to live light, uh, live life in light of being the people of God in a pagan world. But, we can think of Deuteronomy simply as this moral code book. And it is. It's a lot of ways. It's a law book. But it's more than just a list of laws. It is a covenant document. We're going to come back to that at length here in a minute. Um, But it is, in other words, the exposition of God's loving lordship and relationship that He has established with His people. To say it another way, this book is a reminder of the way God shows His great mercy and love towards His people. It is the establishment of God's gracious rule. So this morning, as we briefly look at our text, to realize I spent 15 minutes on uh, you know, introduction stuff. Um, this is what I want us to spend our time thinking about. The Lord God is our relational, present, promise-keeping King. The Lord is our relational, present, promise-keeping King. So first we'll look at the Lord is relational. Second, the Lord is present. Third, the Lord is faithful to His promises. So first, the Lord is relational. I've already mentioned the idea that this is a covenant document. If you've spent a little bit of time in the Reformed and Presbyterian circles, you will have heard the word covenant not a few times. (laughs) Um, Maybe some of you will think too much. Sometimes you get that feeling of like, covenant this, covenant that, covenant this. Um, And in fact, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, you may ask the question, well, I don't see anything that says covenant right here in in the the text. In fact, I, I know that if we go back to Abraham, we read a passage earlier that talked about God making a covenant with His people, but I don't see that right here in the text. The truth is, the entire book of Deuteronomy though it's a sermon in many ways, sermon of Moses, his last words. Remember, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land, and these were the words he received from the Lord, the final sort of parting words to the people of God as they were approaching the promised land. It's a sermon. But it takes on a broadly covenantal structure. Now, that's a lot of theology language. What do I mean? Covenantal structure. Well, I have to do this. I'm sorry. If, you, if you've been down this path before, you, you can kind of just say, up, yeah, Rob, but for those of you who, for whom this is new, I think it's important for us to parse this out a little bit. Ancient covenants were a common theme in, in the ancient world, this time frame. There were other peoples that lived around that time, and we have some of their writings, people like the Hittites. Um, and we see these covenant documents in these ancient cultures. We have them, extant. We have them. We can go back and we can actually look at the documents. My grandfather uh, was an expert in Ugaritic and uh, in all these ancient languages, in Akkadian. And and he would, this was his job, was to go and translate and work with all these ancient documents. Uh, And we can go back and we can see 
these covenant forms. And this, uh, so, you, you know, you, you, we have forms in our own culture, right? Uh, when you go to a wedding, you can expect some things at a wedding, right? There's going to be vows, and there's going to be promises that are made, and it takes a certain form. We have treaty documents, even today, and those take certain forms. Well, this covenant stuff is a form that was part of the ancient world, where a king would make a covenant with another king, or with somebody who was underneath him, and it would take certain forms. And part of the form was there would be, at the very outset, a preamble. That, it, that is a thing that set the context. And that's what we have in verses 1 to 5 right here. A preamble, a context setting. It sets out what's going on here. Um, and then in the verses 6 uh, and following, all the way up to chapter 4, we have what's called the historical prologue. This is the fun, you know, a big word for saying uh, it's all the stuff that the king has already done for these people. Everything that's gone on before, this is what the king has done. And Moses will go and relate. Here's how the Lord has redeemed you and and loved you and cared for you and been with you all this time. And we'll see that within those first uh, uh, four chapters or so. Now, as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, I might occasionally highlight the structure. Um, But for now, I just want us to note that it is the structure. That's what I'm trying to get across. Um, And you might say to yourself, okay, fine, Rob, that's the structure. Why do we care? Um, I I love this question, so what, who cares? It's the the question I throw to my community group all the time. So what, who cares? Like, what bearing does this have? What does an ancient Near East covenant with all its bits and pieces have to do with me? Well, it matters because it points to the most important fact. Our God is a relational God. Our God is a relational God. Notice all these place names that you see here in these first few verses. Uh, Seems kind of random. In fact, we don't even know where all of these ancient places were. They have, scholars have some guesses. Um, But these place names tell us that the people of Israel were, were, have gone through a land and they were in a land in the plains of Moab that's east of the Jordan River, if you have a map. So, I've got to do this right. East of the Jordan River for you. And the land of Canaan was here and the people of God were looking sort of to go here and there were all these people here but this was the land of promise that God was going to give to them. But they had, they had come up and traveled around and around and come up to this land all through all these other lands but God was giving them this land this promised place so all these place names but what it tells us is that the people of Israel were in relationship to something that had gone a long time before. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those names come up all throughout the Old Testament. They refer to the forefathers of Israel. And we already read one of these passages that I want to highlight. You see, the Lord had entered into relationship with Abraham. We see this in the passage that we read from uh, Genesis chapter 17 where it says, uh, 
He said, the Lord says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face. Behold, my covenant is with you, the Lord says, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So this land stuff, all these place names, is wrapped up in God relating to Abraham. And not just to Abraham, but to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There's a really amazing part of God's relating to us. God related to Abraham and to his sons and to all of Israel, not on the basis of anything in them, but purely on account of God's love for them. Abram was called from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a pagan living in a pagan land, and the Lord set his affection on Abraham and said, I'm going to make you, Abram, into a great nation. I can imagine Abram sitting there saying, Why me, Lord? What, what about me? I don't understand. And the truth is, God would say to him, I, I'm making you into a great nation because I'm making you into a great nation. I love you because I love you. I set my affection on you. And, and, and this is proved throughout history. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Jacob's sons were deeply flawed, deeply sinful. They regularly failed to trust the Lord and to obey Him. They acted in terrible and wicked ways. We could go through all of the Old Testament and see all of Genesis and see this reality. And yet God continued to be in relationship with them. Israel, after being led out of Egypt... They went to Mount Sinai, and of course they grumbled and complained the whole way. Yet, when they got to that place, God made covenant again. He reminded uh, the people of Israel of the relationship He had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He said, I'm going to make my, I'm, I made covenant with them, the generations that preceded, and I'm making, renewing the covenant now with you. And what happens immediately after Mount Sinai, where God brings this covenant relation, saying, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you through the Red Sea. And I've established my relationship with you. And what does Israel do? They worship a golden calf. They rebelled. Yet, God still promises to be their God. The next generation goes all the way to the land of promise. They're looking out over the land. They send ten uh, spies, uh, twelve spies into the land, and ten came back and said, "The land is just too hard. We're not going to be able to. We're not going to be able to go in, Lord. You don't know what you're talking about." Two spies, Caleb and Jacob, faithful, but the other ten were like, "Nope." And all of Israel complained against the Lord. We can't go into that land. It's too dangerous. And God punished that generation, made them wander, but He never stopped being their God. And here they are once again on the plains of Moab looking out to the promised land and God is saying, I'm going to give this land to you because I am in relationship with you. 
You see, it was by this covenant that God bound himself to his people in relationship through thick and thin, through sin and rebellion, through all the hardships and trials of their journey, even through enslavement in Egypt. God was their God. They were his people. He loved them despite their sin and rebellion. Now, of course, the story continued even as they entered the promised land. The people continued to rebel. God had to chastise them, punish them, exile them, but He never stopped loving them. He continued to be their God. And it, and it begs the question, how can God have such, such, such patience and love and care for such a rebellious and sinful people? Sun school answer, Jesus. He, of course, was Abraham's seed. He was true Israel. He never rebelled. He perfectly obeyed. And yet, Jesus was cut off. He was removed from relationship with the Father. He hung on the cross and He says, What? My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? He endured the wrath of God for our sin and rebellion in order that we might be in relationship perpetually and eternally with God. The heart of this relationship is these words. It's found throughout Scripture. The Lord says, I will be your God. You will be my people. No conditions. No prerequisites. It's a promise. I'll be in relationship. Friends, do you know this God? The gospel, the good news is this, that even though we are by nature rebels, the Lord Jesus Christ is cut off from relationship with His Heavenly Father for rebels like us. That we might be called the people of God. That we might be called His children. And our response is simply this. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him. The one who is forsaken that we might be called the children of God. Believers, this is great comfort. Knowing that He calls you His own. And He loves you as His child. Not because of anything in you. But because He loves you. Because he loves you. Well, the Lord relates to us particularly through his gracious covenant relationship, but he doesn't only relate to us. It's not just that he enters into this relationship, but the Lord is also present with his people. It's not wholly obvious from the text that the Lord is present, but there is evidence to this reality. To get to these plains of Moab outside of Canaan, they had to go through some hostile territory and were reminded that the Lord delivered them from the hands of these enemies, the king King Sion of the Ammonites and Og, the king of Bashan. It's not just here. If we we were to go back and recount all the ways in which God was present, it would take up a whole other, well, couple hours or more. 
But with just to highlight a few, the smoking fire pot that went before them day and night through the wilderness, manna from heaven, water from rocks, protection from enemies, deliverance through the Red Sea, and on and on and on. God is present with His people. In fact, Moses understood this perfectly. After the golden calf narrative, there's this, there's this exchange between God and Moses. God is, is interceding on behalf of sinful Israel. And this was God's purpose, that, that Moses would intercede on their behalf. And God, in His, in his dealings with Moses, says, is sort of penultimate saying to Moses, He says, Alright, alright, I relent. I won't destroy this people. I'll even let them go up to, into the land that I've promised to them. But I'm not going to go in their midst. Moses is like, "Uh uh-uh. We're not leaving this place unless you go with us, Lord. Unless you're in our midst, unless you're here now, there's no way we're leaving. Moses, that's a really strong claim. Bold demand. The way and the reason he can make this bold demand is because it was part and parcel to the promises he made to Abraham. I will be your God. I will go in your midst. I will be present with you. This is your people, Lord. Don't leave us alone. Go up into the land of promise with us. We need you. We're defined by your presence in our midst. And so here they were, about to enter the land of promise, knowing God would go with them and before them to be their defender and their shield, to fight their battles, to provide for all their needs. And of course, Christ Himself is the fulfillment of God with His people. What was His name? Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus came and dwelt among us. The image of the invisible God. Not only that... But on His ascension, as we just looked at in the book of Acts, He sends the promised Holy Spirit to be with us continually. So today, even as we gather together and worship, God is present in our midst. Christ is present by His Spirit. And we enjoy the fellowship, the provision, the protection, the communion of our covenant Lord. What an amazing thing. God with us. When you think about the presence of God with us, Emmanuel, I think we can take great comfort. Whatever fears we have, whatever situations we face, whatever trial and grief that so closely attends to this life, we can find comfort knowing God is with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Finally, and in conclusion, Our covenant Lord relates to us and is present with us. And finally, He is always faithful to His promises. Verse 6 and following in our text, and if we were to go on and on and read in verses 6 and following, uh, it begins the recounting of the promises and deeds of the Lord. And it's interesting, Moses begins with Mount Horeb. Now, where is Mount Horeb? Well, Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. It was the first place that God's people gathered and received the covenant, uh, at least post-Exodus, right? It was where they went and they they worship, and there God gives them the Ten Commandments and enters into that covenant relationship uh, in that particular generation. And this people that's about to enter the Promised Land were their children, 
And so God is doing it once again here in Deuteronomy. He's saying to this generation now, I want to remind you of what we told your parents, what your parents went through. And so he reminds them of the promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises were physical promises that he would grow them as a nation, right? That they would become a great nation. As many as the stars in the sky, the sands in the shore, however you want to put it, uh, they were going to be uncountable. And then they were going to receive a land, a particular place, this promised land of Canaan. And it's interesting. Here, reminds them of those promises made to Abraham and the time at Mount Horeb. And then immediately launches into this discussion, it seems out of place, about appointing leaders. This is what happened back at Sinai. Moses was overwhelmed by the caseload, right? He had too much to do, too many people to take care of, too, too many judgments to make. Uh, uh, this is a good uh, argument for a, a session-led church, right? We need leaders, multiple. No, there's no one person that can do it all. And Moses was like that. And, and so there's this whole discussion about the appointment of leaders here in the text. It's kind of interesting. Why, why is he talking about this right here? What does it point to? It points to the fact that God was faithful to His promises. He had grown them into a great nation. He had, they came to Mount Sinai not as just a tribe full of you know, a few brothers and their kids and their wives and their you know, household servants and whatever. But now they came out of Egypt as a great congregation. A great group of people. Too many for Moses to, to manage. And they needed to, to have leaders over thousands, etc. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you thousands. So this is the interesting part. So Moses says, this is too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. So the Lord God increased your numbers so that today you are numerous as the stars in the sky. That was the description of them at Sinai. And then in verse 11, May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as He has promised. Do you see that? Moses is saying... He's reminding these folks in the plains of Moab. God was faithful to His promises. And in a little bit, he's going to recount how uh, that story I already mentioned, how when they were approaching uh, the land the first time, they didn't trust that the Lord would be faithful. That was really at the heart of the issue. They looked at the land. They looked at the people. They thought, there's no way. God cannot do this. God will not be faithful to His promises. And and, and Moses will recount that point. But he's making a counterpoint here first, saying, look how God has been faithful. Look how you were unfaithful and not trusting God. God is going to be faithful in bringing you into the land that I have promised. So, I think it's easy for us, as we look at the pain of this life, to think that God is not always faithful to His promises. Have you ever been there in that place? A place where you're thinking, Lord, where are you in this moment? 
Are you really faithful? Do you forsake us? Do you really provide for all our needs? Because I don't always feel like you're providing for all our needs. Are you really present? Are you really going to conquer evil in this world? We feel those things, don't we? If we had time to go through all of Scripture, we couldn't help but come away with this overarching reality. God is always faithful. Always. Not always in our time frame, not in our way of thinking, not in the things that we necessarily want Him to be do, but He does, but He does the things that are for our good. We read that earlier in the, in the service. He does the things that are best. It's not always the things we want. But He is always faithful. But here's the other side of the coin. We're not. We're not. He's faithful even when we are not faithful. And isn't that the reality of our hearts? We blame God when in fact on a daily basis we're unfaithful to Him. As we press on toward glory, just as these Israelites were looking across the plains of Moab, across the Jordan River, into this land of promises. They were preparing themselves to enter into that place. And similarly, as we press on toward glory, we can press on because we know this reality. God will bring us home safely, even despite my unfaithfulness. What an amazing God we have. The story of the Bible could be summed up this way. A faithful, loving, present God entered into relationship with an unfaithful people, and He did so through the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, who willingly and obediently, faithfully laid His life down for the unfaithful, for you and me. What a glorious truth. This is the hope of the world, that the Lord God entered into relationship with His people, that He entered into relationship with us through Jesus Christ, that He is present with us, that He is faithful to the end, and He is leading us to our eternal home. He is the covenant Lord who loved us not because of our goodness, but because He loved us on account of His grace and mercy, the steadfast love of the Lord. What a God. What a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an overwhelming thing for us to think about You. A God who reaches down into our lives and lays hold of our hearts and uh, despite it, their unloveliness, You love us and You transform us and you, you make us Your own and You call us Your child and You enter into relationship with us and You're present with us and you, You're faithful to the end. We have hope. What an amazing God we have. We give You all praise and glory and honor. We thank You for the faithfulness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for His presence with us. We thank you for the relationship that is ours through him. And we give you all praise and glory and honor. Amen.